And then the Behold Her promo goes yeah. All right, I'm going to start recording. And I'm your host, Ishan. I didn't like the way I did it the first time, so I got it. Okay. <laughs> for the Mundangerous Imaginarium in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 163 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about using illusions. But first, the rogue traders step into the light in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the scarecrow deploys his fear toxin to rob banks or something in the character creation forge. So our episode of Tabletop Babble, in which we discuss the evolution of monsters in 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, is out this week. Uh, As of Monday, September 10th, Uh, you can now get it over on the Tabletop Babble uh, iTunes feed. Which is on the Don't Split the Podcast Network, which we are also on. And uh, here is a quick message from another one of the shows on the network. Hey, it's your pal Mike Shea from the website Sly Flourish and author of the books The Lazy Dungeon Master and Sly Flourish's Fantastic Locations. I'm going to be hosting a brand new show on the Don't Split the Podcast Network called The DM's Deep Dive. Each month, I'll be talking to a member of the D&D community about a particular topic of the game like encounter design, tools for improvisation, and game pacing. You can subscribe to the show through iTunes, on Twitch, or on YouTube. Join me and we'll all work together to make our games fantastic. And we're back. Thanks, Mike. So, speaking of a group that is perhaps a bit less sly, uh, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? The Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game, played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Dead World Malajak, the Rogue Traders and their two best companies of armsmen, or at least the survivors of their two best companies of armsmen, uh, have located the Verza House, an ancient obsidian fortress once occupied by the fallen Dark Angel, Lord Cypher. And they are desperately defending it uh, under a vicious assault <laughs> from all sides, as it turns out. Yeah, top side, bottom side, the left and the right. I'm sure the front and the back as well. Um, we're not doing so hot. Definitely the front. That's the gatehouse. Uh, yeah, Doc is holding his own against, uh, what, a giant uh, chaos space marine? No, 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 no. These are like mutants. Um, but, oh, uh, oh, is that all? Oh, okay. Never mind. It's just mutants. A giant champion, for sure. Uh, one who uh, cleaves him in twain, as they say. Uh, he is all but dead. Yes, yeah, stem to stern. Is that how it goes? Yep. And the rest of you uh, are f- are falling back to make your last stand. As you recall, uh, Trank and Draco are retreating from the casements um, back towards the, uh, the main hall. Um, Trix and Flair are struggling uh to to maintain the fight in the in the gatehouse meanwhile echo is in the basement and she has made some repairs to the engine uh that that lives sits down there and not sensing any anything is gonna go well she just like throws up a hail mary or a or a hail throne as it were and uh activates the engine mechanism that she has discovered and repaired who would have thought once again, we're all saved by Echo. <laughs> <laughs> Recurring theme. So there's like a blinding flash of light uh, in the midst of this battle. And then like 
you know, killing blows that never quite land. And in the midst of the struggle, you're, you're suddenly released from that. And uh, in the gatehouse where that bloody melee was raging, uh, as soon as like Trix and Flair get their vision back and they look around the the gatehouse, for one, is nicely lit. The smoke and the blood and the evidence of all this violence is gone. And instead, the gigantic doors have been cast open. And there's this beautiful, sunny, fertile valley of farmland uh, beyond the doors. Okay, that's unexpected. Then, Doc? Also not in pieces. <laughs> he opens his eyes. Which oh, that's disappointing. Nobody expected to ever happen again. Uh, he's not cut in half. He he seems to be functional. Uh, Draco and Trank see the same kind of thing. You know, the the craggy desert that once made up this valley has been replaced by like this idyllic hamlet and all this fertile farmland. Great. Okay. Are we alone? No, your armsmen are there. I mean, well, there's, there's not many of them. <laughs> <laughs> But there's a few survivors, and so they're uh, equally bewildered and don't know what to wait, make of this. Wait, so you're telling me that uh, all the armsmen who died are not here, but Doc is. Well, Doc was not dead, uh, as it turns out. Uh, fine. Fate is a fickle mistress, uh, as it were, and, and Doc just clung by the barest of threads to life. Yeah, no one has any idea what's going on, but Echo who was in the basement, in the engine room, strangely, of the the mansion, right? The mansion had an engine room. Um, turns out she's now in a, a workshop that is full of workers, a buzz with activity. And she's greeted by an engineer who introduces himself as Jack. Jack kind of feels like, or kind of seems like he uh, has been through this before. You know, it was like, oh, there's a stranger in the engine room. Uh, this happens. And you don't know why you're here. Right, yeah. You are bewildered, uh, unsure what's going on, not expecting to see me, and uh, I should lead you to your friends. So he does. I'm sure they're around here somewhere. Hold on. Let's go find them. Uh, well, exactly. Uh, we, we we heard you're here. Uh, we'll, we'll start organizing you. So he, he does. He reunites the group, and, and you all kind of like the armsmen and everybody else kind of all get led into that um, large main chamber um, where where that had sort of been your base of operations, right? And and this is now like this beautifully decorated receiving hall, um, which is, you know, meticulously maintained and, and very brightly colored and well lit and all of those types of things. And once you're all there, uh, you realize like this is, you know, as you expected um, when you first got here, when you kind of had that feeling about it, this is really a house, you know, it's a fortress, but it's also just like a home, um, which is strange. Well, yes, you know, guns and armsmen make a house a home. Right. <laughs> um, and, and realizing that, there must be a lord of the manor, and, and Jack indeed confirms that and suggests that perhaps um, rather than asking him questions, you should ask these questions of the lord of the manor uh, by the name of Lord Harlock. Yeah, this seems to be sort of part of his his uh script right like oh bewildered person shows up uh reunite you with your friends and oh yeah by the way you probably want to see the lord of the manor right lord harlock all right all right let's let's go do that yeah Uh, so he begins uh walking us along and starts to try to explain what's going on before we get there the the main thing of course is mm, maybe what we had expected we are no longer when we were 
Yeah. Um, as you and Jack and Harlock walk around the grounds and, and sort of get the tour, uh, it becomes very clear. This is the Verza house. It's just not the Verza house in the 41st millennium. It's sometime far, far earlier. You know what? It's better than being far later. Okay. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll find out exactly when next week. So this week we are talking about using illusions. Why would we do that? What is even the point of that? Uh, because listener Andrew Dolby asked us on Twitter, uh, said, I'm very new to D&D and I'm interested in examples of using illusions and suggestions on how to creatively use magic. Any episodes that you would like to recommend or any plans for an illusion-based episode? Ah, you are in luck. You should listen to episode 163. Mm-hmm. Yep. All about using illusions and probably something else in the future. We got we got ideas cooking. Look, if Andrew wants to wants to talk about illusions, then we should I think we should do that. Uh, because they're pretty cool. Why is that, Shane? So I think what, what makes illusions fun is that um, they are open-ended. You know, most spells that you get in D&D have sort of like you do a thing and it creates a specific effect. You know, you throw a, a little piece of bat guano and you get a fireball. Um, you say a few magical incantations and uh, a storm of ice pummels your opponent. But illusions, a lot of times they're like, you create an image or a sound and you specify what that is and, and what that means. Yeah, I think maybe the only sort of like traditional D&D school that is similar would be enchantment where you're sort of coming up with commands. Um, I guess divination is the same, but it's all the GM who's like doing all the work in terms of making stuff up. Yeah, sometimes transmutation has some of that as well. Oh, yeah. What do I turn this into? Yeah. Yeah. But illusion is just like it doesn't need to um, adhere to the rules of physics. It can just be whatever you think you want it to be. Yeah, and and what this means for the game, of course, is that you can use creativity to address a variety of situations, right? Like, you get to put your own thought into this. It's not looking for the tool in your tool belt. It's actually, like, using your mind to create the tool for yourself, which means you've got a lot of utility out of a limited selection of spells. Yeah, there are certain... Um, players who really like uh, depth in terms of power and there are others who really like breadth and illusion offers so much breadth Um, you know if you're the kind of player who likes to walk around with every single type of tool in your backpack and every single kind of weapon because you never know when you're going to need a warhammer versus when you're going to need a longsword or a a reach weapon right Uh, (laughs) illusion spells are are all in one that's probably one of my favorite things about them of course it's also one of the most difficult things about them yeah, I mean, getting the value out of illusions and, and incorporating them in a game is, I, I think, challenging. Um, and we'll talk about examples in a bit, but like because they're open-ended, uh, it really takes some nuance. Yeah, like what if your GM sucks? You know, even bad GMs are usually like, okay, roll your, uh, roll your dice for that fireball because that's what the book says. But a, a grumpy GM... Um, or someone who's not particularly creatively inclined uh, can very easily shut down illusion spells by just saying that doesn't work or doesn't end up making sense or people easily see through it. That's the problem, right? Is like every illusion spell requires some adjudication. You know, like a fireball goes off and it does damage and you you can point to the book for that. But 
an illusion gets created and like who decides how they interact with the hallucinatory terrain you know like there's not a role specified in the book they could bumble foolishly off of the edge of a cliff or they could suspect this all along and completely negate the use of the spell right who knew that this npc was actually a cartographer and knew that there would be no swamp here right exactly you know so you you were totally at the mercy of the gm to to play along with your solution right and then and then it's also a, a factor of like how much the gm is going to add on top of the illusion itself or the spell itself in order to get the effect that you want you know like do kobolds who see a major image of a dragon just immediately like kneel down and bow to it or and and, like do they show obedience to it or like does that dragon need to say something very commanding like or maybe speak draconic to them or or you know like what are the the barriers that are in place to getting that effect that you're looking for right if they're tucker's kobolds then they have of course worked out with Uh, other dragons a code word that must be used so that they know that this is not in fact an illusion of a dragon right at the same time yeah you're right like a a gm could just say that the uh, entire group of kobolds throws down all their weapons and like starts bringing everybody fruit you know like you can completely eliminate not just one encounter but but maybe like an entire dungeon right (laughs) assuming that the gm just decides that's what happens you know there's also things like um using illusions in negotiations or in performances and things like that, like you could definitely interpret that those illusions are helpful to the process, right? But you could also decide that they're distracting to the process. And like, you don't really have any indication in the spell itself as to which way it's going to land. It's just up to the GM. Right. Like if I cast an illusion of me on fire, but on unharmed, um, do I get uh, like inv- advantage on intimidation, uh, <laughs> persuasion? Maybe it depends on what I'm trying to convince someone of, or right. does like the entire village attack me because I'm obviously some sort of demon? Right. <laughs> and then, of course, there's also just the question of like, how? You know, like, is there a role that's going to determine what this outcome is? Like a skill check, a saving throw, or do these things just happen by choice? And whether or not you want to use that spell is probably dependent somewhat on how the GM is going to adjudicate its effect. Yeah, totally. Like, um, I think a lot of times people will say, all right, you cast an illusion. Now give me a deception check or, you know, some sort of lying in order to like see how believable it is. But it's not usually the wizard who is good at those sorts of things. And so if I know that that's going to be happening, I'm actually going to shy away from illusion just because I'm never going to be good at those, which means my illusions are just never going to be good. Right. So then not just dependent on the GM, but illusions are also totally dependent on the player themselves and, and the player's creativity, right? It doesn't give you any guidelines in the book other than maybe an example of a sample effect. Like, it doesn't give you a set of uses for these spells in the book that you can, you know, check off your list of like, oh, this applies in this situation. I'll go do that. Right. Like, what is the horrifying visage? Oh, the spell just says there is a horrifying visage. Am I describing it? Do I need to? I mean, you run into the same situation where um, you're playing a charismatic or like very intelligent character who is maybe more charismatic or intelligent than you are. And now, like, are you 
role-playing it? Are you judged based on how well you're role-playing it? Are you judged on how well you're describing this illusion? Yeah, I mean, and then not even that, but you have spells like creation, right? Which just let you create stuff out of the blue, you know, illusory stuff, but still can acts as normal for the period it exists. And it's just like, cool, you can create literally anything, which means you have to decide what that anything is. <laughs> like Plutonium. It's always plutonium. Yeah, exactly. Right. Like uh, <laughs> powder kegs of dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> but like at the end of the day, like that spell is only as useful as you are useful in actually coming up with what that great thing would be to have. Is this why I never play illusionists? I think it might be. Mm, yeah. Also, some days, some days I roll in and I'm just like, I'm tired. I want to hit things with a stick. Yeah, that, wanna, yeah, that's the real thing. Is like those spells are like, man, I just, I know that I could use this as a solution, but I just really wish I could smash it. Yeah, yeah. Or um, it feeds into my min maxer maybe a little too well, right? Where I'm like, I have an idea, but I should not use this idea because I believe it is overpowered, and I'm kind of being crappy here, but okay maybe i'll do it once or twice yeah, why this, not this should not work every time but god i sure hope it works this time <laughs> <laughs> um this is important to like keep in mind in fifth edition anyway like the lower level spells tend to have pretty big restrictions on them um which sometimes means they're a little more usable uh in that weird like reverse creativity way of like um like a blank page is intimidating but like a few constraints actually like inspire um, once you get to level three, you get major image and then at five, you get creation and then illusions really start to open up and basically become real, um, as you use them. Right. They start to blur that line between illusion and transmutation. Right. Okay. Another issue you run into with illusions is that, um, with anything that's particularly creative, um, or requires a lot of player input, it can change the pace of play. Uh, you need to often negotiate, you know, what does the illusion look like and therefore what is the effect on NPCs or the terrain or, the or you know, the environment. Uh, and that's a discussion that takes place above the table but is also taking table time. Yeah, I mean, you could be in the middle of this, like, super exciting combat where you've got, like, swashbuckling adventurers swinging on chandeliers and setting taverns on fire. And then, like, you get to the illusionist who's like, cool, I have a great thing for this. Now, how does this work? Or could I do this with this thing? And it's like, okay, five minutes later, like, I guess mentally the rogue is just still hanging on to that chandelier. <laughs> and, like, the barbarian is still <laughs> setting things, like, you know, has the torch just sitting over the, like, pile of spilled alcohol and, like, is ready to set the thing on fire. But we're just waiting for the illusionist to determine with the uh, with the narrator exactly how he's going to cast the spell. And it's like, yeah. oh boy, okay. Well, what were we doing 10 minutes ago when we started your turn? It's very important what color the feathers on this pretend bird are. And then, of course, the worst part of that is like, what if the GM kind of rules against you and isn't going to like play ball or the outcome isn't going to work as you intended? And it's like, okay, then I won't use an illusion and I need to uh, basically replan a new turn in the middle of my old turn. Yeah, in that case, you usually need some sort of backup plan. It's it's a little more easy, I think, in something like 5th edition D&D, where every spellcaster has, you know, probably damaging cantrips that they can just sort of fall back on. You know, if you're feeling lazy or tired or 
okay, that gambit didn't work at all. I guess I will just uh, firebolt. Yeah, I'll just shoot the thing. All right, so what are some examples of uh, illusions in play that maybe, I don't know, we've had? Well, so one that we've talked about on the show before, um, but it has been an awful long time, uh, from the Morning Glory campaign in Eberron, uh, we had that fight with the uh, T-Rex and the Drow. Do you remember that one, Ishan? Oh, I remember. Now, the the T-Rex was not illusory, and neither were the Drow. However... <laughs> <laughs> but an illusion kind of set some things in motion, did they not? Uh, yeah, they certainly did. In motion being the operative word, nothing was happening. There was, in fact, a standoff. Well, so, yeah, so back this up. So where are we? We're in a in a clearing in the jungles of Zendrick. Right, there's a there's a huge storm uh, brewing, and there seems to be some sort of like magical circle um, that's been carved into the landscape that everyone is sort of inside. Uh, the the T Rex is in the center of this large clearing. The Drow are there as well, and like these massive lightning bolts are crashing all around, but they're not landing inside the circle. And the party has approached the circle, sees what looks like a fight about to happen, and decides what to do. Yeah. And that decision of what to do was to uh, <laughs> use the cantrip to make a loud noise that sounded like a drow ordering the other drow forward uh, into the fight against the T-Rex. Turns out a large number of those drow uh, couldn't distinguish that from an actual commander. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they rushed it. Yep. <laughs> and a fight ensued. What was a standoff, a, a peaceful standoff, became an aberrant T-Rex versus a number of drow and ended up with the cleric getting swallowed whole by the T-Rex. You got out eventually. Yes, after uh, after Bastion punched his way into the T-Rex's stomach <laughs> to get me out. Hey, that was how you learned that an Eberron drow are not necessarily always evil. That's not true. The drow were all evil. Hmm. I said n- not necessarily. They, I mean, they could be. They're just not suicidally suicidal hunters, is what we learned. <laughs> and they weren't necessarily looking to skin you. Well, I mean, you know, after that, they kind of were. Oh, they definitely were afterwards. <laughs> we had another fight uh, in our Dark Sun campaign where uh, illusions actually featured as a very large component of a mass combat. We haven't really talked too much detail about our dark sun campaign but um basically we we play a mercenary company or members of a mercenary company that has you know like hundreds of members we're defending the city of tear from uh from an army backed by a by a rival sorcerer king and maneuvering has all kind of come to a head at a series of mines that are just outside the city um and basically like the army of tear led by our mercenary company have sort of marched up the pass um, and the army of Hamanu has already besieged the mines where other members of the company are sort of dug in and we're going to break the siege. Uh, and in that process, um, we have a high-level illusionist in our mercenary company. Yeah, we got some pretty interesting tactical uh, results from that battle. What were those, Shane? Yeah, so... The illusionist ends up knowing that the first thing that's going to happen as they approach to break the siege is like a rain of arrows is going to like befall the ranks um, and and they're going to target our siege weapons, right? Uh, She basically creates a false front line 
um, of troops to like overinflate our numbers. And as all these arrows fall in, um, it's dispelling illusion, right? Like, oh, wait, they wasted their whole first salvo on illusory troops and then behind them are healthy and comfortable and happy uh elites <laughs> who charge forward into their ranks completely undiminished um and, and that allows us to get our siege weapons into place and sort of actually have a chance at this battle where we were otherwise outnumbered and kind of out positioned like now we're no longer suffering for not having the high ground because we're able to engage through deception Right, her illusion spell was basically target army loses first turn. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to put it. Uh, which didn't even win us the fight. Like we ended up having to flank um, and like basically jump their HQ <laughs> in order to like cut off the head and the body will die type situation. Um, so like we had a it, it was an uphill battle both ways. That that just got us into the battle. Have you ever had any like smaller uses? You know, kind of more mundane uses. I had a dungeon crawler who uh, made really good use of minor illusion. Uh, what he would do a lot is sort of stand in a corner uh, and then cast an illusion of the corner so that it basically let him like hide behind a door that wasn't really there. Okay, so it was like a false wall type situation? Yeah, exactly. And then, you know, when uh, the wandering monsters came by, he could, uh, you know, get sneak attack because, of course, he's a multi-class illusionist rogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a couple situations where if you came to a door that opened in the right way, the trick was to cast an illusion of the closed door. And then you could open the door and you could see through it, right? Because you know it's an illusion. You and the party could see through it. And everyone else on the other side of the door doesn't know to look for anything. So all they're seeing is the door still closed. And then everyone basically just gets like their first salvo of arrows at whoever's sitting in the in the room. Nice. Uh, yeah, we had one where um, I think I might have used this example at some point in the past. But so in a game I was running the characters were having to break into like a magic shop or something um, to, to get some items out of it. Yeah. You know, to just to get some items out of it. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, as, that's as reasonable. You right. So anyways, they're, they're trying to pick the lock on the front door and um, it's taking way longer than it should. <laughs> so like people are starting to like walk by and take notice. And so they end up like their lookouts just have to stage a fight. Um, in order to like <laughs> distract everybody so they end up in this like they pick a fight in the crowd uh and like get into this you know slapstick wrestling match with like some stranger and then you know they're like firing off illusions to keep drawing attention to this and like really like gathering a crowd and um hollering to take bets and they you know like somebody hops up on a crate and is kind of like calling out the match and all this ridiculous stuff and it's all just because the thief keeps failing their role <laughs> and like can't actually get in the stupid door <laughs> and so like and then eventually like the door opens right and they get it closed behind and then it's like well i guess we're gonna have to leave it shortly um and like you know then trips an alarm which uh, alerts the like the town watch like a silent alarm so as the watch is starting to come they have to keep getting like this crowd needs to start shifting as the fight so they're having to like you know make sure that the crowd is always in the way of the watch trying to come to investigate this silent alarm and all this stuff right and it's all just like this big show like it's just a performance um but they're using illusion to kind of enhance the performance and enthrall the crowd um despite it having to be like 
you know, ultimately an actual like wrestling match, like kind of a slap fight. I actually love this idea of using illusions in, you know, small ways just to screw with people. Basically, like it's very useful when you're gambling, for instance. I mean, mm-hmm. silent image doesn't really work when you're rolling dice. But uh, do you remember in Gaunt's Ghosts, the like board uh, guardsmen uh, play this this honestly dumb game where like there's a a, a louse, like a little bug mm-hmm. uh, inside a, a jar, and they're betting about like which hole the bug is going to come out of in like a, a stainless steel sieve. Yep. Like that's the that's the thing they're betting on. But that doesn't make any noise. Um, no one's supposed to touch it, right? What if, uh, I don't know, what if the bug's an illusion all along? What if uh, the bug is an illusion that you're controlling and, you know, all your fellow compatriots are taking bets? Or maybe mm-hmm. the ball under the three cups, also an illusion. Pretty easy to palm an illusion. Yeah, that also feels like a pretty easy way to uh, get somebody to attempt to slit your throat when they find out. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and then everyone jumps and you get XP. Perfect. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Look, he tried to kill me, okay? It was self-defense. So let's talk about using illusions as a player um, and sort of some some tips or uh, tricks for doing that. Well, so contrary to most of the examples that we've already given, uh, as a player, keep in mind that illusions are not strictly for deception. You can use them for so many different kinds of things. You can use them, you know, to illustrate a point um, or to capture someone's attention. Um I I sort of think of it as like fantasy PowerPoint. You know, like if if you are in front of a gathering and you need to explain what exactly the Death Star looks like on the inside, uh, an illusion works really well. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Like I, I like just those small uses. Like obviously, deception and fear and awe are, tend to be pretty straightforward uses. But like, um the death star like setting up that like uh war room is great also like if you're um investigating like uh like a crime in sharn you know like one of those like uh private detective type stories that are are popular in sharn like you might go around asking if you've seen this man and it's like an illusory picture or image Mm -hmm. of them you know like you recognize this half orc in full rendered 3d perfectly accurate to uh to what the body looked like um, yeah, but, I think we've done that with uh, the war correspondent build where they took, uh, was it Keen Mind, where you can remember, like perfectly remember anything for a month, and then they would just like make illusions of of documents, mm-hmm. like secret documents, like top secret documents. They'd be like, uh, yeah, this is what it looked like. Right. Um, you could also do this like a lot of times a GM will ask a player to like give a speech, you know, like kind of inspire the men or like kind of give them that uh that little extra something to fight for like i love the idea of it's like you know you conjure up an image of the duchess that you're fighting for and it's like remember like this is our duty to our monarch <laughs> like put a name and a face to it like this is who you are fighting for this is for you know our nation yeah you don't need a real uso tour where you can just conjure illusions of a band exactly <laughs> <laughs> or like you know if you're giving a speech you may as well add some fireworks why not mm-hmm. that's dangerous ordinance normally but eh, these aren't real but right. they still look pretty exactly you know part of that is the ability to personalize your illusions you know maybe you are the person who always has fireworks following them around or the color of your cloak changes depending on your mood yeah, or like uh, every time you create um, illusions, you kind of have like uh, blue flames 
right? Like it, it's just your thing. You always make fire blue. Um, or like you always, um, when you create creatures, they are always in, uh, in a distinct color of, uh, clothing or armor or something, those images. Yeah. I like that idea that someone who's maybe from far away creates something that is very familiar to them, but not familiar to other people. Mm -hmm. It's a nice opportunity to sort of like get it, get into it. Like other characters will probably ask, I don't understand what's going on. I don't know what these creatures are, or I don't know what this like heraldry means. Can you tell me about it? And then mm -hmm. you have an opportunity to talk about your character's backstory. Right. Um, you also want to like make sure your illusions are tailored to the target and their purpose. Um, so like speaking of like GM adjudication and trying to make sure that like the GM is on board with what you're trying to do, um, use your social skills and use your research and like those types of things to create illusory effects that are specific to the target of them. You know, like, so if you go through the trouble to like learn that a particular orc tribe you're facing is very superstitious about like, um, the patterns of the clouds, um, then when you use an illusion to make the clouds appear a certain way, the GM is way more likely to let that have that like bigger and more exciting outcome that you're looking for. Yeah, I think that's a good point. You know, when we talked earlier about how illusions are so, so wide ranging that a GM might lean in toward uh, tamping them down and making it so they're, that they're less effective. If you can give your GM like really good reasons why you've put in the effort to make this work in this particular circumstance, they're much more likely to let it slide. Like if you have done the research or you've worked with the uh, more learned members of your party to do research and to find out like what exactly is going to hit home with this particular audience, what's going to frighten them, what taps into their primal fears or desires, there's really no reason for your GM not to be like, okay, like this is not you are casting one spell and, um, ending an encounter this is like the entire party has worked together to come up with this one single plan yeah i'll let it work yeah and and so on that note actually i think that's an important piece of like using illusions as a player right is don't try to gotcha the gm like i think players a lot of times especially with these open-ended things like feel like they get a chance to like haha you didn't expect me to do this i pulled one over on you um, if you're more upfront and open, you know, I like, I want to do like this spell to get this effect. And like, I would like to combine that with this knowledge or with this player's like other thing, um, and, and have the following outcome, right? Like if you kind of position it as like, here's narratively what I want to happen with this, like help me on the mechanics. Um, then I feel like GMs are generally more receptive. Whereas it's like, if you start asking those cagey questions and then you're like, you know, hmm, okay, like twiddling your or like steepling your fingers and all that sort of stuff. And then it's like, I do this. Like the GM feels like if they don't tamp you down now, things are going to get completely out of their control and you're going to end up ruining the encounter. Yeah. It also really helps to throw in those tidbits that the GM has been probably trying to feed you the entire time with, um, you know, the lore of the setting and, and the NPCs. Like, great if you can remember somebody's name in the past or like what they looked like or or you know they mentioned their fa their favorite flower or something like that great if you can use that your gm will respect that and honestly you'll you'll win a few bonus points yeah and and like setting up that that preparation stuff also gives the gm uh, an indication of what's to come so they can help plan more effectively for it so if you're 
gathering information about those orc superstitions, um, the GM is going to be like, okay, cool. I will plan on you getting a cool effect for your illusion as opposed to like, oh no, uh, you've used an illusion and now you've short-circuited my entire encounter. Yeah, I don't know what to do. And, you know, if you're asking the GM for help on how to tweak the spell to get the best use out of it, they're on your side. You're working together. You're being collaborative. Right. Yeah. And, you know, you, you are giving them that heads up about, oh, here's how I'm going to try to wreck this encounter. <laughs> yeah. And then and then in fairness, right, like if you're not able to find useful things to do with a spell, like trade it out, right? But be open about it and say, like, I, I'm really struggling to get much use out of this. I don't feel like it's very good. I'll just take Fireball instead. Yeah, and, you know, hey, here's the reason why I'm taking Fireball. You know, like, I think you sort of find Fireball sort of boring, and I kind of do too, but this isn't really working. Yeah, It also prevents that situation where, you know, you've tried to do the gotcha, right? Ha ha, I play my illusion, and they go, yeah, that doesn't really work. And now, okay, you've wasted a spell slot, and you've wasted a round. Um, if you are working it out ahead of time together, then that will almost never happen to you. Right. I will say one caveat as a player is keep in mind the tone of a campaign when you're using illusions because you can do anything that you want, right? You can you can make any visual stimuli, but if you're in a dark, gritty campaign, like maybe avoid um, illusions that look kind of slapsticky or, you know, don't cause an illusion of, of cartoons or, you know, something that's overly silly. And if it is a silly campaign, maybe try not to use disembodied heads. Mm-hmm. So... As a GM, though, like, what are what are some tips for incorporating illusions as both challenges as well as like adjudicating? Okay, so go rewind and listen to the part uh, that we just said about how players can use them. Your NPCs can do the exact same things. Yeah, and not only that, but uh, once you let a player do it, the the NPCs could do the exact thing to the players. <laughs> like, yeah, you're right, and they can't be like, "I hey, wait a minute, that doesn't work." Right. No, I think I think we've proven it does work. Um, and then keep in mind, like some of those secondary benefits, right? Like um, you can, in the same way, use illusions for those minor effects that sort of add to the illustration of an NPC's personality. You know, like that that NPC always looks like their hair is on fire. It's just an illusionary, illusory affectation that they adopt. What does that say about that NPC? You can also introduce plot elements or wriggle your way out of. Uh, potential dead ends using illusions like um, I introduced Nistrim Shadar very early in the morning glory campaign knowing that he was perfectly capable of uh, casting uh, disguise self anytime that he wanted so the party met him great they met him much much later uh, and only realized then that they had basically known him for 10 levels because he just didn't necessarily look like who he was before I think he showed up originally as an elf right and he just seemed to know things that made us suspicious. And then we pieced together that he was that elf. Right. Uh, and then, you know, if uh, things didn't quite go the way that you had planned, maybe what the party saw turned out to have been an illusion. Or maybe that that was a different person, like a doppelganger or someone casting illusions and, and they just looked like someone else. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you're doing that, like when your narrative itself, like arc wise is built around illusions, um, the way to do that is to just treat them as reality for all intents and purposes until the PCs become actually suspicious that there's an illusion in like in play, like 
don't plan on some mechanical way for the PCs to accidentally stumble upon the illusion um, before it's necessary to the plot. Yeah, like there should be no reason that a PC is trying to touch a high-level NPC's face early on, you know, to try to disbelieve the illusion. There's also no reason for them to be walking around going, I disbelieve, I disbelieve. Yeah, exactly. But the the flip side of that, right, is when the illusion is part of like a localized encounter, right? Like a combat or a, a specific negotiation or something like where there's information about that illusion that needs to be discovered in order to kind of move through the encounter. Um, you maybe want to drop a couple hints early on and then allow roles like intelligence saves or perception checks or whatever to sort of figure out that the illusion is in effect. So like we said before, when you're using illusions in combat, in social encounters, uh, you need to do a lot of adjudicating as the GM. And of course, just lean into the rule of cool. If a player suggests something and it sounds awesome and like it's not going to be game breaking, just go for it. Why not? Let them exercise their own creativity. Yeah. And like that can be a little difficult because you have to plan encounters for that flexibility. So I think what a lot of times happens, that sort of dirty little secret is that you end up rewarding the players um, only with a narrative difference, right? Like, um, cool, that illusion happens. I'm actually running the encounter at the same strength and, like, timing that I had planned, um, but I'm narrating it as that is the impact of that illusion, um, which tends to imply, like, wow, this encounter should have been way more difficult. Um, You got the actual intended difficulty, but more narrative value out of that. Yeah, we talk about this a lot. Let your players feel like they affected things, even if it was going to happen that way anyway. Like if you plan for reinforcements to come in two rounds and someone uses an illusion, great. Maybe that illusion is the reason that it took two rounds for the reinforcements to show up. You know, because otherwise they would have been right there, right? Yeah, or the reinforcements were actually there at the beginning and they're like stalled out in the illusion. Um, And so they're there. They just can't enter the fight until the illusion kind of is disbelieved. Yeah, you might actually bring them in earlier than you anticipated, but not let them them do anything. Right. Which is like effectively a narrative reward, right? If If that turns out to be a very easy fight, well, then that's the reward, right? Is they use less resources. But if that's a very difficult fight, then it's like, wow, like, even despite our brilliant tactical plan, like how much more difficult would that have been? Would that fight have been had we not had that plan? Had we not done that cool thing? Like the wizard basically saved us. Yeah. Major image MVP. So another thing to keep in mind uh, with those open-ended spells, like we talked about at the beginning is that they grant a wide range of abilities that can kind of reinforce the caster supremacy like model of D&D where the wizard always has an answer to every problem and the rogue and the fighter are always kind of looking at their sheet at the very like straightforward I can do this or this or this right so you want to make sure that as you're adjudicating like open-ended spells and, and illusions that you Um, keep them in general guideline with the strength that they're intended to have in the system. Yeah, take a look at the opportunity cost of the effect being used. You know, if it's a second level spell, like suggestion, then take a look at what other second level spells can do. You know, you've got hold person, for example. Um, 
if uh, it's uh, some ability that was gained through, you know, spending XP or PowerPoints, like look at a talent that's the same tier. Yeah, and, and you're looking to try and balance that just because like if they end up like too weak and they can't find good uses for them, they end up just swapping them for the boring abilities that are at least a fixed outcome. Yeah, this is kind of the reverse of feeling like you always need to make a deception check when you're using an illusion. You also don't want the rogue, who's very good at deception and has invested a lot in it, to feel like the wizard is always better at deception because they can just cast an illusion. Right. So I think a good starting place for that is when players want to use illusions, like they can describe them, right? But then also have the player explain what the goal of the illusion actually is and use that as the baseline, right? Like get to the, the not just the look and, and trappings of the spell, but the expected outcome of the spell up front. So you're not, you can kind of work from the full picture of, of the intent. And then in the moment when you're adjudicating, also just keep in mind, again, the opportunity cost. Like if a caster has spent a significant portion of their resources in order for this to happen, like something interesting should happen, even if they're not necessarily the best at describing what it is they want, even if they're not 100% clear on what it is they're looking for, um, help them out a bit. Like Especially if it's something higher, like a level six, level seven spell. If it's a level one spell and it's early on, maybe let them sort of muddle through. Yeah, exactly. Like, make sure you aren't giving them too high a power, um, like letting them recreate other spells that they could have taken. Um, And then likewise, make sure they're getting something that feels like the right power level for the cost that they've paid to get it. And then I think the other like kind of quick rule is, um, you know, typically you're going to have your NPCs rolling some type of save or some type of skill to sort of get around that effect. Um, when that happens, like the caster spell save DC is a really good number to start from because it's like right there on their sheet and you can ask them that number and it like validates for them that you are using the mechanics um, as intended. And it's not just an arbitrary decision. Make sure you're keeping lines of communication open about how the player is feeling when they're using these kinds of spells. Um, Because, you know, it can vary depending on the level that game is at or what other abilities the uh, other characters have. If it fluctuates, just make sure that the player is still satisfied. And if you feel like you made a mistake, that's totally fine. Uh, At the, you know, once the session is over, you can just tell them hey you know that worked fine this time but i think maybe in the future we'll run it a little bit differently what do you think yeah and as players you kind of have to accept that those uses will evolve over time so in conclusion if you're using illusions they exist likely because the world that you're playing in is magical in in some way um illusions are part of the fabric of reality so when they show up in the game use them to reinforce that this is what the world is like. You know, magic exists. People are maybe not used to this, but you can use them to reinforce the magical nature of the world, that it is different from our world in very obvious ways, one of which that someone can wiggle their hands and an image suddenly springs into existence. Right. Yeah, another thing um, about illusions is that they are, like in the game itself, they're one of the areas where players actually get a lot of leeway to control the narrative. Um, and that's not a super common thing in traditional D&D. Um, so it can kind of give players a lot of power, but 
with that power also comes responsibility to like work towards the better narrative, right? And not just the most powerful possible outcome. You know, fortunately, Uncle Ben's death was just an illusion to teach <laughs> Peter a lesson. Right. Great. <laughs> He's been alive the whole time. Oh, I knew that new Spider-Man game for PS4 was garbage. <laughs> um, for GMs, it's difficult to sort of give up some of the control of the narrative to your players, but this is a really great opportunity. Um, and if what you're going for is players who are invested in the world and helping to shape it, and who actually provide a lot of description, then illusions are where it's at. Yeah, and as a player, like if you want to get that kind of control, um, you know, help, <laughs> help meet the GM halfway. Like, be transparent about what you're trying to get done, and make sure that the GM is more comfortable saying yes than they are like suspicious that you're trying to screw up the narrative or, or like rest away their plot point. Do you hear that, Ishan? Something horrifying is whispering my darkest fears into my ears. Don't worry, it's not real. It's not real. It's fine. Well, if you're going to have to wind up in a straitjacket, then I guess it's time for us to move on to the Character Creation Forge. But before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane, at Mundangerous, that's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan, at Evil Sense Carne, that's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show, at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. Total Party Thrill is also brought to you by the good folks over at Cobalt Press. Yeah, the Creature Codex is available. It brings you nearly 400 new foes for 5th edition D&D. That's everything from acid ants to zombie lords. You know, A, A to Z. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, and I mean, like, my aunt uh, had that phase in the, you know, like, early 70s, late 60s, but she doesn't do acid anymore, okay, Ishan? Look, the only part of my aunt that was acidic was her tongue. <laughs> that must have been hard growing up. <laughs> Especially when she licked me. <laughs> Speaking of licking, there's over a dozen <laughs> new demons. <laughs> and five new angels, also big fans of the licking for some weird reason. Seven eyes, probably seven tongues, too. There are wasteland dragons, there are dinosaurs, and there are a bunch of all-new golems, including the altar flame golem, the doom golem, and the keg golem. I just want to say I don't understand how a golem is made out of doom, and I cannot wait to find out how. Uh, I'm very excited for a golem made out of kegs. I, I mean, is it powder kegs, or is that mead kegs? Any of them would be great, right? Finally, my brewer's tools are useful. <laughs> brewer's tools to kind of like superpower him. Or, you know, I tap the leg. Right. There are also elemental lords and animal lords, which will challenge the most powerful parties. There are chieftains and other leaders for ratfolk, centaurs, goblins, trollkin, and more. There are also a bunch of new undead, including the hierophant lich, to menace lower level characters. And if you really like DSPN's James in Tricasso, and who does not, he's one of the designers. So you can use these monsters in your favorite published setting, like, I don't know, Eberron maybe, or Planescape, or something like that. Or you can populate the dungeons in a world of your own creation. And you can pick up the Creature Codex on the Cobalt Press website and surprise your players with monsters they will never see coming. This is actually the best for that type of player who reads the monster manual mm -hmm. and always knows what's coming up. 
but I guarantee they don't know what a keg golem is. Unless you're that type of player and you want to make sure your GM doesn't get the head start on you, go ahead and pick it up too. All right, so this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the Scarecrow. I hear he's outstanding in his field. Yeah, so the Scarecrow is uh, a Batman villain, um, which you may recognize from the first Christopher Nolan Batman. Uh, He is a genius psychology professor who had a psychotic break after being subjected to fear-inducing toxins. Um, Depending on which version of him, it's either... Uh, really really painful like parental abuse from both of his parents or otherwise just his father but yeah it's lousy um he then uses those toxins on his victims uh to inspire fear and you know like we said at the top rob banks or um transform the city or generally do batman style evil you know, the silliest thing about the first Batman movie was that they had Killian Murphy and they gave him a character where he then puts on a mask. I, Why would you hide his face? Is he good looking? I don't feel like he's that good looking. Um, talk to anyone else. Yes, he's good looking. I mean, it's not like I think it's weirder what they've done to Tom Hardy never showing his face. Oh, also true. Although he always looks different in everything that he's in. Yeah, he's like the least recognizable person. <laughs> yeah, there was that one movie where he was supposed to be Patrick Stewart's clone. Wait, what? (laughs) It was a Star Trek movie. (laughs) Oh, okay, great. (laughs) All right, so Shane, what is the Scarecrow's build besides Slender? Mastermind Rogue 9, Illusionist Wizard 11. What is it with Mastermind? We hate Mastermind, and yet, and yet it keeps making its way in. You know, maybe... Maybe the mastermind's gotten the better of us. No, here's the thing is that the Scarecrow is not a particularly strong Batman villain, and therefore he doesn't deserve a particularly strong mix of classes. Look, I'm sure someone is going to point out the one time in the comics when the Scarecrow was completely overpowered eh, at us. Yeah, I don't. (laughs) All right, so Mastermind Rogue, uh, nine levels, which is way more than we ever give. Except that one time. (laughs) Right. Um, Includes expertise as well as all the rogue survivability stuff. So um, evasion, uncanny dodge, that thing. Um, I think for the Scarecrow, medicine and intimidation are probably the two that make the most sense. I've never seen that combination of expertise before. Yeah, I know, especially because neither of them are intelligence based. So that's that's rich. Um, You'll also get Master of Intrigue and Master of Tactics. Um, They make your help actions... uh, moderately more useful and um you can mimic speech which could maybe be useful in creating illusions Uh, they're not all that great anyway i mean you can mimic the speech of somebody's abusive parent perhaps i suppose that's true that's terrifying but what we're really here for are 5d6 sneak attack dice and the insightful manipulator ability um which is generally pretty weak but it is the only like psychoanalyze ability that you can find in fifth edition um which is sort of the hallmark of the scarecrow being like a psych doctor yeah it gives you insight into an enemy's mental stats uh their history the character traits i will say it is great research for figuring out what particular kind of illusion is going to affect them yeah um and then once you've got that information you need to be able to you know use illusions to your benefit um that's where illusionist 11 comes in 
Um, the spell that we're here for, of course, I mean, it's almost too perfect, is the third level spell Fear, um, that it creates a cone in which uh, enemies in it make a wisdom save, or they drop what they're holding, become frightened, and must use the dash action to move away from you. It's almost like you have a toxin that spreads out in a cone-like shape. Mm-hmm. A fear spray, if you will. So note that the movement of them running away from you triggers opportunity attacks for any of your allies. Yeah, and dealing damage to those creatures does not offer them another save, which is pretty rare to find with those fear effects. And since they're moving on their turn, you have another opportunity to get in sneak attack damage. Yeah, because they have to take the dash action, um, which means they cannot disengage, (laughs) which means you'll get your opportunity attack. Uh, You'll get up to six level spells, so you get all the good illusion spells like uh, Major Image, Hallucinatory Terrain, Creation, um, all that stuff. And you'll get Improved Minor Illusion, which means you can cause image and sound at the same time. You've got Malleable Illusions, so you can alter an existing illusion an existing illusion on the fly. Um, it doesn't really work for fear, but for others, uh, you know, if you're causing some sort of hallucination, uh, you can adapt it based on how they're actually reacting. You know, if maybe you guessed wrong and the first thing that you conjured doesn't scare them, the second one might. Or you can make much more elaborate things because you can, like, recast your illusions in different different turns. Um, and then uh, to add in a little more survivability, which is almost getting ridiculous at this point um given that you have blur and mirror image also on your spell list but illusory self um is an ability as a reaction you just make an attack that hits you miss once per long rest um because you throw an illusion in the way of it um so you know as if you didn't have enough things to do with your reaction you've got yet another bailout um available to you yeah i like this uh as you know the typical like batman is um suffering from the fear toxins of course he punches the scarecrow in the face but nothing really happens because it turns out the scarecrow was never there he was actually behind the batman exactly the wrong scarecrow so in terms of leveling leveling order there's really not a great way to do this because you need basically five levels of wizard and nine levels of rogue to get the full scarecrow effect um so you can kind of pick either direction to go first. Um, personally, I would probably go Wizard 5, then get Rogue 9, and then finish off uh, Wizard 11. Or do you mean starting off Rogue 1, Wizard 5, Rogue 9, Wizard 211? I mean, that's a that's another way to do it for sure. Um, it, it, you know, it's just you, you got to pick your own flavor. Because, um, like I said, 14 levels to get the, the two core abilities is pretty steep price to pay. I agree. Although Rogue One Wizard One actually is a pretty strong build. It is, yeah. All right, before we wrap up, we want to take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We are continuing our series on playing non-human characters and we're heading back on into Eberron and talking about playing Kalishtar. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building the Mind Hunter. Well, that's it for episode 163 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. 
I'm Lisa Chen, and I host Behold Her, a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop games. There are so many women to behold in this amazing hobby, and our experiences as female gamers are as diverse as we are as individuals. Through one-on-one interviews, audio essays, and panel discussions, all centered around a monthly theme, the guests on Beholder share their unique stories as players, game masters, designers, artists, organizers, and so much more. Their words are inspiring, uplifting, and informative. Check out Behold Her Podcast wherever podcasts are found, or visit BeholdHerPodcast.com.